You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. How's it going? Things are going okay. How are you? Good, good, good. Not a bother. We're going to talk about you a lot today, I think, in this episode, <laughs> because we're we're going to talk about desistance. You know, we've been covering detransition in a couple of recent episodes, and we wanted to give some space to the desistance experience, because I think there are a lot of differences. I think there's a big debate about whether or not kids do desist, and the landscape has changed a lot. So we have research, we have papers, we have anecdotal evidence, and we have a lot of personal stories, including your story of desistance before anyone was even talking about trans kids. Before it was even a word, because I remember when I came across the word desistance, I was like, what's desistance? And then they explained it, and I was like, oh, 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 that's what happened to me. (laughs) Because I I didn't actually know the word. This is like 2017, I didn't know what desistance meant. So it means effectively that you no longer want to transition or you no longer want to be the opposite sex or you no longer want to be. And it it can it can emerge in many different ways. And it's very hard for me to like remember exactly how it emerged for me. But yes, yeah, so, some people would be like, oh, my God, she's going to repeat this story again. Has <laughs> she no shame? The answer out, is no, she hasn't. <laughs> it turns out I have no shame. But it 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 does give me it does. I do remember it. I do remember feeling like I was all sorted in life. I should be a boy. And it was quite clear that's the way it should be. And, you know, God was in his heaven and I should be a boy. And then um, life rolled on and it was easy. And I think people forget how easy it is when you're three, four, five and six. You know, it's, yeah. it's no, you're, you're in this world of, frankly, magical thinking where you, you can be a boy. And if you say it, you can be it and mm-hmm. you, you can live it. And then there's a kind of a dawning consciousness that arrives that have certainly arrived for me. And I know I was very young and I know some of the, the children and the adults now are older, but I've I've worked and I've known people. You can do magical thinking when you're 47. Like you really, yeah. and you can also, the ability to think two thoughts that are directly in conflict is well established in the human psyche. You really yes. can. <laughs> yes. You can think, I'm actually really skinny and I, 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 can, I can have this food. And then at the same time, you're thinking I'm so fat. You can think the two, you mm-hmm. really can. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I was definitely thinking two thoughts and rolling with it. Like Which that were I, what? What were the two I thoughts I knew I was time. a girl, but uh, I was a boy. You know, some sort of weird, yeah, okay. yeah, something like that. You know, was it like a I'm a girl physically, but a boy in spirit? I mean, was yes. there like that metaphorical element to it? Very much so, and I okay. couldn't have said that because I didn't okay. have the words. But that's what it was. That I was like essentially. I was a boy. It's it's funny because a lot of times when you listen to you know young people 
who are talking about their trans identities, whether or not they are ROGD profiles, a lot of people say, I had this experience and I didn't have the language. And now I have the language. I mean, have you have you heard people talking about that? And well, and you're saying that too, in a way. So yeah. it's it's a bit of a blurry line there. But didn't Ian Hacking, who we really we've got to try and meet him one day, but Ian Hacking talked about that when you give it the language, you actually you you induce it in many yeah. ways, which is yeah. it's, which is frightening because actually one of the great things about psychotherapy, and you'll know this, that sometimes you give the language to somebody and their shoulders go down, they take a deep breath and they go yes. So yeah. giving somebody the language of their experiences is a very powerful gift, yeah. but it's also a very heady kind of it can lead you. It's it's a yes. double edged sword, you know. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the language, but I certainly had a very dual kind of dual thought process that was going on. Anyway, life went on and somewhere along the way, I realized something is happening and the adults think the adults are, I didn't have these words, but the adults were pandering to me mm. and older people were pandering to me and the young people were along with me. They totally, they were buying in. The, the younger kids, the kids my age bought in that I was some sort of boy, girl, boy. You know what I mean? They got it. But okay. the older kids and the uh, like a good bit older and the adults, I realized, oh, my God, they are they're just playing along. They're playing they're along. Just pretending. And that was utterly mortifying. Yeah. Utterly humiliating. Like, like actually make your heart stop in horror that this could be happening. And I didn't realize it. Poor and you. Yeah, I felt like I'd, I'd, they were laughing at me. But also it was like an awakening moment. And what's, what's different now is that kids believe your parents should twist their minds around, force themselves to believe, believe it. Like, uh, it's I've, like Peter Pan, like you have to believe that you, you can believe. fly in order to fly. And you will. And it's like, the, you know, for me, my Catholic religion, you, you have to believe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's the gift of faith. That's what I was taught mm. about. The, you ha Some people have the gift of faith because you just enter oh. into it. Yeah. You know, and what what I realized, I suppose, was that. They they didn't believe. And then I think to myself, oh, my God, uh, what the hell is happening? This is embarrassing. I was ashamed. I was really, really ashamed. And I didn't know what to do. It was hor horrifying. It was actually a horrifying experience. And then I thought, I have to get out of this. And I didn't know how to get out of it. And this was the point I was the most bulgy. I was the most angry. I was the most into it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was certainly very, um, very intense at that point and the joy had gone from it. The lightness had gone from it and it had become a very, I'd say, aggressive manifestation by then. And everybody knew not to comment. And I was, you know, everybody knew not to dare go, which is where I really kind of understand where the, some kids might be because they're yeah. so aggressively, uh, you know, into it. And it does remind me of the horror somebody must feel if somebody doesn't believe because it would, must be horrifying. It must be chilling. It must be absolutely. Oh, my God, you don't believe me. You think I'm just pretending. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I did. I did. Then somewhere along the way, puberty was coming in. And I was realizing 
my body's out of control. My mind doesn't control my body. And that was a shocking feeling that I thought was mind over matter. If I, yeah. I was a very determined person, you might have noticed. And I, I thought... I could see that, Stella. My, my determination will win the day because it got me everywhere else in life, mm. in my, my little life. But at the time, oh. I just thought, no, 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 I, I'll just... I just think this. I'm I'm strong. My brain is strong enough to overpower this situation. Basically, I can <laughs> you know? will myself yeah. into a new reality. Yeah, and then I realized with puberty, which is so shocking, I realized, oh my god, I'm not in control at all. I'm not it, at all in control. Like, like desistance needs like a sister term. Defeat. It's defeat, isn't it? Yeah, for me. The it way was. you describe it, it sounds yeah. like a defeat. Like you yeah. tried so hard to block out all of this reality, and then you just became defeated by it. Well, you you relinquished your control to reality. I didn't. It, it relinquished okay. me. I, I, you know, I, I kept on trying to fight, but I was Ooh. losing and losing <laughs> and losing. Like, you know, like that kind of Lord in, in, in Monty Python. He's lost his yeah. legs and I'm still fighting on. That's where I was. Yeah. And I, I, I really think that there was a, 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 an extraordinary feeling that I was, I was losing my body was betraying me mm. and I had no control over the situation. And I remember thinking distinctly, and it was such, a, you know, an arrogant thing to say for such a young kid. But I remember thinking, this is the hardest thing I'll ever do. And it wasn't that I'll give up my body or give up this thing. It was how the hell do I come back from this? I can't, I can't come back. I cannot come back from this. This is just a joke. I can't. I can't. I need to stay in. And I need to stay in strong because they're, they're, I couldn't even envisage trying to come yeah. back yeah. and talk about. And like what would happen, which was dreadfully sad when I think back on it, is once in a while I'd inadvertently wear something or like something that wasn't as overtly boyish as as everything else mm -hmm. I did. And somebody would comment and I they would set me back six months. Totally. I, I just, tell parents all the time, don't mention that she's in a dress. Don't talk about it. Don't I say anything. Be in a dress. Don't I would be in a dress. I was so not in a dress. But I was, <laughs> I was like... very, very vaguely, tinily, not overtly boyish. And somebody yeah. would say, oh, watch it there, Stella. And I'd go... <gasps> and I wouldn't. You wouldn't see a blink yeah, in my yeah, face. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah, have seen yeah. anything. But it would be like, yeah, right. Okay. Okay. So here's my question. If you, if you can think back about that time, do you think it would have been helpful or harmful if you believed that, hey, gender's a journey and sometimes we identify as boys and later we can identify as girls and it's no big deal. Come on back, Stella. It's nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to... Mm you know, feel shame about. It's just you experimented and now you feel differently and that's okay. Like, do you think that would have been helpful? Or do you think having the idea of like a quote gender journey would have kept you stuck for longer? And this, of course, just your experience personally with your personality and your life experiences. What do you think? I think in my experience, I would have said, yeah, I'm a trans kid. I would have said, yeah. That's me. Lovely. I've got it. Mm. 
And that makes me a little bit special because I was convinced I was a little bit special, as we all are. It took me a bit of time to realise that bit. And I would have thought, yeah, that's me. That makes sense to me. And if I'd heard it at those kind of magical years between three and seven or something like that, oh, my God, it would have been just so perfect. After that, I think I would have said I would have had a bigger view of it and an understanding of, okay, this is tricky. But it would have been, thank God, I have something to hang my hat on. This is me. This is an understanding. This is the the shield I can present to the world of this is who I am. A kind of a calling card of this is this is it, you know? Yeah. I, I think this matters and I'll tell you why. A lot of people today who are arguing for the affirmative approach, when they hear about somebody like yourself or other people who desist, they dismiss those stories as though it was like a walk in the park and it was this easy breezy thing to come back to your female identity. But actually what you're saying is it was an absolute misery mm. and it was really torturous. And had you had the concept of a trans kid, that would have felt to you at the time like a lifesaver. And it would have felt inherently me. It would have been, that's it. That's what Now I have the language, Finally, right? <laughs> that's what's inside me as yeah. opposed to outside me. And I, I didn't ever come to a point until like we're, we're talking really many years later that I thought I'm, I'm glad to be a girl. I'm happy to be female. That was a long, long, long yeah. way away. Do you know what I mean? So I was, mm-hmm. I was years just, like you say, defeat, accepting, just yeah. you, you'd want to accept this quick because this is a car crash right now yeah. with the vibe. And how the hell do you get out of this? Because you're in the middle of a train wreck here. And how do you get out with any sort of dignity here? Yeah, that was, that was how I was feeling. And it wasn't a case of, oh, um, I should be glad to be a girl or anything like that. It was more like, you're a girl, older people realise it, and you've got to navigate that. It was just like, this is a really hard chess problem. Nothing to do with being happy about being a girl. Utter mm, anger mm-hmm, and rage mm-hmm, at being a girl. Mm-hmm. But that's neither here nor there. You've just got to save face now because you've got no other choice. You are stuck with this. And that's what I thought I was. I thought I was stuck with it. Nobody jumped in and said, well, you're not stuck with it. You've got another yeah. options. Now, you know, that was my experience. It wasn't anybody else's. So I, right. I, I'm reluctant to impose that on anybody else. Yeah. At what point, I mean, was there ever a point where you like told your parents explicitly like, look, I know I'm a girl, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, they that knew I, I was I mean, a girl. Uh, yeah, no. And we weren't that type of family. So it wasn't like. I mean, I know they yeah. knew you were a girl, but I'm wondering, was there ever like a point where you kind of raised the white flag, you know, and said, OK, fine, fine, I get it. Did you ever admit to people that you had kind of come to terms with what you were fighting? I don't think so. No. no. So you just like I was told, right. called your mom one day and said, oh, by the way, I'm married and pregnant. Oh, no. OK. Oh, no. OK, I'll get it. <laughs> There was a slow pulling off of the plaster and, you know, I remember when I was 14, my friend who was trying to be friend, good to me, she, her dad uh, owned a restaurant and this was back in the day when nobody in my world went to restaurants. So it was really considered a really posh thing to do. And she said, you can come to the restaurant, but you have to wear a skirt. And she was being good to me. Now, I was yeah, years yeah. out of it. Like, I was 14 yes. now. So I was a good few years from the 10-year-old. God, this is embarrassing. 
And so I was like, okay, yeah. And I, I still remember the skirt. It was an awful experience. It was awful. <laughs> but I did wear it and everybody knew, don't say anything. She will actually punch you. Yeah. <laughs> that was the general yeah. vibe. But I did, okay. you know. Yeah, yeah. So there was, you know, there was a school uniform that I wore in secondary school. So I, I did, I did kind of come around to it. But that was kind of, you were forced into it. I didn't wear it in primary school. So it wasn't like today. It's hard to explain. You're kind of asking questions from today. Today. I know. It was very, I know. very, very. Nobody Different. was under any illusion other than she's a bit mad, like when she was 10 or 11. And I was silently, privately going through a little battle that nobody knew I was. Nobody had any idea. They just thought, very intense, strange kid. But they didn't think she's in this huge battle. <laughs> about pinks and blues nobody knew that they just thought I was just presenting in that way and the, the life world's on the, you couldn't have seen it you know. and so let me oh there's so many questions that I have now and I promise I want to kind of move into like the current manifestations of this but what do you think then I mean I already know the answer to this but like isn't it funny that the affirmative care clinicians insist that if you don't affirm explicitly and you're not a, quote, supportive family, that the kid is at a super high risk. Like, I know that you were going through a battle and I don't in any way mean to undermine the difficulty. And there are probably some kids who go through that internal battle and it gets even darker and maybe they become seriously suicidal. So I don't want to undermine it, but it's treated as though it's this one-to-one relationship. Like, if a kid has gender dysphoria and their family and environment is not supportive, then they're done for. And obviously, you fought this battle privately, internally. You learned a lot about yourself. There were dark moments, but you came out of it and you survived. And of course, you know yourself tremendously in hindsight. So it just makes me think, wow, the human story is so much more rich and complex than this stupid like simple simple story that we've been telling people about themselves I mean why would you tell a child you're not gonna make it if you don't have your parents jumping up and down beside you that's nuts I mean the history of time teenagers have had really difficult personal battles that their parents don't understand that's almost like the nature of being a teen yeah and it makes me think of, I remember watching Louis Theroux's film, I think 2016, 2017, Transgender Kids. And uh, I remember Diane Ehrensaft was on it and she said, you know, the, the trans kids are very happy, says Ehrensaft, who's very pro, you know, affirmation, until they reached puberty and, and then they tank. And I remember she used the word tank and I was like, I'd say they do. I'd say yeah. they do. Because there's actually a coming into consciousness, a kind of a yes. consciousness of reality. And I was like, well, of course they tank. But her, it's and this is a battle of interpretations because her interpretation of the tanking was very different to mine. Hers was they need to get on puberty blockers because they're tanking, because they need to transition as fast as possible. While mine was, no, no, they're tanking because they're realising what they've got into, that they're, that they're realising reality is big and hard and the world won't bow to your mind. Yeah. And I, I seen I, you know, I as anybody who listens to this knows that I, I do watch 
and did watch very intently the Jazz Jennings whole series. And you saw her and I, I really felt sorry for her. So she she really was such a joyful kid who was just going to be a girl, you know what I mean? And it was all so light and magical. And then yeah. you could see she tanked, she tanked because she went to this, you know, whatever, middle school, high school, and she was she was grown breast, she was becoming a girl, but real reality, real life of what was in store was kicking in. Mm-hmm. And then she ended up homeschooling. She, she had it hard. I, I don't think she had it easy at all. I think she had it hard. But I, I think it's a real issue. Even with the help of the, the puberty blockers and the hormones, there's still a reality to grapple with there. And it's not this kind of fantasy land. And this is where it gets tricky as well, because honestly, she felt that she was tanking because there were people transphobic because the boys didn't fancy her while the boys fancied everybody else. However, she also didn't have any sexual feelings because her puberty was blocked. So it gets it turns into a real tricky, tricky Mm -hmm. territory. It does Mm -hmm. mean that there's there's kind of people who interpret desistance one way, which is my way or your way, and other people interpret Mm. desistance as almost uh, 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 something that we don't want to happen. We need to encourage yeah. these trans kids to be trans. But I've never heard a very solid result, you know, response to, for thousands of years, children desisted. And they existed, if you follow me. And now, now suddenly all of these trans kids are going to transition. I've never really heard, heard a solid kind of response to that fact that... Of course, people like me existed. You know, you know what I mean? And we moved out of it. I, I, I just I can't see how yeah. they could deny that fact. There's so many well, of us. I mean, if I were being generous or if I were trying to understand the most un, you know, reasonable view of it that that the different perspectives hold here, it would be, well, we could say the same thing about, you know, being gay. You know, for me- many years, yeah. gay people repressed their their sexuality and just made do and entered into unhappy marriages and lived a complete lie about who they were and their sexual they orientation. They did, And yeah. we don't want to do that to trans people. So I think it is, it is the root of it is believing that there is this kind of verifiable actual thing called a trans person. I think that's the root of it because I think you you could easily say that our sexual response is measurable, it's objective, you know, who we can and and cannot be attracted to is uh more concrete than like a supposed gender identity, but if you don't believe that, then you could easily see it as the same thing. I, I agree with you. And I think everything leads back to some people believe in gender identity theory and some people have a different understanding, maybe a biopsychosocial or a developmental model of understanding of how gender manifests. And when you're on the other camp, they just think some people within them are transgender and their interpretation of me was, oh, yeah, she was a tomboy, but she wasn't transgender. Well, some people are transgender and they think I'm imposing my my experience on other people who had a very different experience. But then I'd say, yeah, people always existed. People always existed where they were gay. And there were some really wretchedly sad stories. But I'm not convinced the numbers of people who, who lived the opposite sex are really, really small. 
like compared to gay, but maybe I'm maybe I'm in dodgy territory because history it's very hard to know what we what we missed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk about desistance today then because I think your experience is interesting considering the kind of the the social environment, the cultural environment, the family environment, society was very very different, and so when you were faced with your body changing or when you realized that everyone actually saw you as a girl and knew that you were a girl, like you kind of had to come to terms with that. Um, And your gender distress or your gender experience was organic and spontaneous, which is the best way that I can explain it. It's not that you were a true trans or you had true gender dysphoria. Even that I feel uncomfortable with now. But it came out of nowhere. Nobody suggested to you, hey, have you ever explored a new identity? It just came out of nowhere. Mm. But today things are looking quite different because some of the kids that we work with or know of, they probably would never have questioned their gender had they not been alive at this particular time during this kind of zeitgeist. And so I wonder if desistance would be different for them. Oh, I think it would be very different. I think it would depend on the context, but the the cultural context today to be the the like of me is a very different context. And I often think yourself and myself don't quite give enough emphasis to those children, the kids that were like me, as in they they had the, you know, spontaneous, natural kind of Mm -hmm. disassociation Mm -hmm. with their, their gender. And mm-hmm. then they, they, around about 10, they get into technology and they find out that they were a trans kid. And they are very, very, very insistent and persistent about their identity. And they have a world that is really, really very yeah. alluring to them just when they're discovering technology. So like when I would have been in my dark hole would have been when I would have gone online and thought, oh, my God, look at this. So yeah. it's, it's such a different world. So we talk a lot about the, an awful lot of people quote the famous stat that 80% of children, roughly, you know, between all the studies ever done, 80% of children uh, desist from um, from being gender dysphoric, I suppose, for want of a different... Right, right, right. Yeah. And this was, you know, 11 studies. Thank, thankfully, James Cantor did the world a great service by, you know, bringing it together and showing the stats and showing all these studies and that he kind of he put all the studies together of all these like he went back to like 1970s, 1980s. And these were very extreme children because these were children who had been brought to gender clinic. I wasn't brought anywhere near a gender. Like they wouldn't even know what a gender clinic was. My parents like it was so yeah, not going to yeah, happen, yeah. <laughs> like laughably not going to happen. So I would say these were already either very involved parents or very gender kind of sensitive parents that really mightn't have liked girlish boys etc and Mm -hmm. anyway they were in clinics and they were the ones who were studied and those children 80% of those desisted so it's of the extreme end of life and they you know and it, it ranges from in and around I think it's something like 73% 73% to 94% and people are happy to kind of agree that 80% is the rough figure. And so he compiled all those and it was a great it was great to have it 
because then it was like, okay, now we know that children can be gender nonconforming and 64% of those kids are probably going to be gay. Like we, I'm, I'm saying actually that's just for boys, but honestly there does seem to be a huge correlation between being gender nonconforming as a child and turning up, turning out to be gay or lesbian or bisexual. And, you know, I often think we don't explore that point enough. I think that's a very mm. interesting point that Carol Hooven or somebody who wrote the book Testosterone could give us a lot of insight into. And so there's those studies. And then I think, well, yeah, but it's a completely different landscape. Like he yeah. compiled that in something like 2017. Now, now it's, it's just so different to be that. That kid would be asked at five and six and seven, do they want to go into the other toilet? Do they want different mm-hmm. pronouns? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And the power the kid would have when they realize, oh, I can change the rules for me. I can change the way people can talk about me. I can give pronouns yeah. and names to myself. I am just, I'm slaying the world with this. I own, I own you all. And I do remember the feeling of the, the, the I was slightly intimidating or there was a power involved in, I can look you in the eye and say this. And I knew I was being impressively unusual. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, if you thought you were a little bit special then, I mean, now you would be the most special. I mean, all these kids are given really a lot of uh, power and attention, and they're really raised up to this kind of very special level. I mean... I'm aware that if you are a trans kid at a university, there are going to be professors asking you to help them write curricula. I'm aware of such things. So yeah, that that, that specialness is really powerful. And in addition, there was a 2021 study published by Dr. Zucker, Susan Bradley, and Davida Singh that followed up a really large sample of dysphoric boys. And as you said, something like 80% of them desisted. And 64% were gay. So we we have this information, but it comes, like you said, from kind of a different landscape. So it's not the same if you are being asked constantly about your gender. Um, it's not the same thing. Very, very, and so much emphasis. And then this concept of the actual, the trans kid which gives you a kind of a framework of who you are and who your inner self is and things like that. I know that um, I've I've worked with parents who desisted their children. These are the young children. They desisted the children. You know what I mean? They helped the child desist. Having um, the, the children, let's say, might have been using the opposite sex pronouns and then the parent kind of gets into the research. For example, when they find out that they 
um, they realise. I remember one parent said, I always thought 80% is this. So it didn't matter that I do the pronouns and it didn't matter that the kid was going into the other side toilets because, you know, they were going to desist anyway. And then suddenly everybody was talking about puberty blockers and I was like, sorry, what? I thought it was going to desist. And so then they they helped the child desist and the way they talked about it was um, just kind of taking an easier road because of the medical burden on the body, which, you know, yeah. that goes into the principles of informed consent, like, because yeah. if I yeah. had been 10 and if I'd been told, yeah, you can be a trans kid, you're a trans kid, I would have gone, yeah, 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 I'm special. <laughs> I've got mm-hmm. this. Great. Go. And then if somebody said, honestly, this is a hard road and you're going to be in hospital rooms a lot and you're going to have an awful lot of kind of invasive kind of questions and it's going to be difficult on your body. I don't know how I could have understood that. I don't know. Like, I wouldn't have given a damn about infertility or sexual functioning, but I don't know how any of it, anything else. I, I wouldn't have liked the hospital feature of it. It would have been a bit. Yeah. 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 I read a book. I, I just want to talk about this book I read. It's called, It's by Laurie Frankel. I wouldn't madly recommend it. It's called This Is How It Always Is. But it's a very good insight into the trans kid of today. It's a novel, so it's an easy read. And it's about this kid who was transitioned and then he moved house. And so uh, I don't remember the gender. It's a novel anyway, so it doesn't matter. But uh, the point was uh, it was a secret, a secret transition because nobody in the new town knew. And it just talks about the the child and it ends in a very... um, kind of they go over to Thailand and uh the the child meets all these um um trans women and realizes that she's like them and yeah I, I, I was probably the most uncomfortable kind of nails going down my my skin read I've had in years. But it gave me a very good insight into what people are thinking and how people are thinking. They honestly think this is truly who I am. It does give you good insight into the mentality of this. Yeah. And and also, I mean, this episode is about desistance and desistance does happen. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the characteristics of kids who desist and of families who are seeing desistance with their kids. Um, And, you know, it it brings to mind this recent study that was published by Joanna Olson Kennedy and her clinic. It was a five-year follow-up study. And basically, it showed very low desistance rates among the kids that she was treating who were being socially affirmed by their families and some of whom a large percentage, I think something like 60% were also medicalized. And so the the newspapers have kind of framed this uh, as a proof that kids' identities are stable and that the old desistance rates, which are between 60 and 90%, are actually not accurate anymore and these kids persist. And Actually, the way I interpret that is, well, yeah, when you affirm the identity and you medicalize the kid, they're less likely to desist, which is exactly what we've been kind of talking about so far in the episode. And so in my experience, working with families and working with young people, I have seen over and over again that when families kind of create some stability and set some clear expectations around what medical interventions Uh, how the family is approaching things like medical interventions, social transition, names and pronouns. Um, And there's still a lot of love and closeness in the family. And the child is encouraged to continue meeting those important developmental milestones and staying engaged with life and all of that. 
there is desistance. And I've seen that it can be a challenging road. I know there's a psychological difficulty when a young person, kind of like what you described, Stella, when they're coming to terms with reality, it can be difficult. But it's also um, when you end up on the other side of that and you develop a little bit of maturity and life experience and wisdom I have never met a desisted kid who looks back and says, actually, you know what? I really wish I had transitioned. All the desisted young people I know are very, very grateful that they didn't take any permanent steps when they were 14 and really begging for them, right? So desistance does happen. And the other side of that difficult battle, as you called it, is often a lot of clarity and kind of gratitude that there wasn't a push to move in the medical direction. Yeah, there, there's a reckoning. The desistance requires a reckoning, a kind of a meeting of reality that is hard. And, you know, there's there's something, that's why one of the reasons why this is such an interesting subject, there's something much, nothing to do with gender that is required for desistance, which is a kind of a... a, a, a a willingness to endure the truth when it doesn't suit you and to face it and to move into it and and handle that fact. And I find that anybody I've met who's desisted is generally very pleased they've desisted. I haven't met, I don't think, an unhappily desisted person. Now, yeah. I have met unhappily detrans, detransitioned person. I've met plenty of them who honestly think I shouldn't have detransed. It's, it's just been nothing but a nightmare because of all sorts of medical, lots of visual. But a desisted person, an unhappy, and maybe they should contact the show if they, if they want. Mm-hmm. But generally, I haven't met. Generally, it's a feeling of I got out of the bind I was in. I was in a mental prison. I was in a dark place that I couldn't get out of and I got out of it. And that would be the general feeling that I I can think of with with desistance. I think there's so much, I suppose, um, horror for people when they think, you know, trans trans people are are such a persecuted minority and they have such difficult lives, etc., etc., and I don't think there's enough kind of appreciation for, well, there's an awful lot of people who are in mental hell in many different ways. And there's many w- different ways to get out of it. And the, the, the tragedy that has happened to anybody who's got gender issues is that it's been politicized into a, a their pain has been politicized into a kind of you're on one side or the other. Imagine, just imagine any other mental health condition. And mm-hmm, it's actually mm-hmm, politically, mm-hmm. it's politically awful if you join the other side. Just imagine if it was any other mental health condition. It would be, it's, it's awful what's being done. And precisely the time when you're starting to find healthy ways to overcome your dysphoria... And you're starting to stand tall in who you are and figure out who you are and come to terms with yourself, which is a difficult healing process. You're told you're wrong. I remember like for years, let's say my body language was very, I know I'm talking about myself too much, but anyway, my body language was very male as such. In my mind, I have no idea whether it was or not. I wasn't looking at myself, but I certainly thought it was. And um, I remember kind of looking in my teenage years, realizing, you know, girls were girlish. I wasn't. 
And I had to straddle the non-binary back then. Obviously, it wasn't called that. But I had to straddle the non-binary world where I wasn't male or female, because if I was too male, I'd be getting back into my trouble. And I needed to not do that. But if I was too female, it was just so awful. I couldn't I couldn't put on that. So I was always kind of strictly neutral in my in my way of being. I don't I've no idea how that came across. But I do know I remember my friend saying to me just a couple of years ago, she was my friend when I was 13. And she said, uh, um, I didn't know anything that you were going through any of that. And she goes, but I do know when you kissed a boy, I thought that is so weird. And I was like, did wow. you? And she only told me that about two years ago. She said, I remember, I just thought that is so weird. There's something so weird about that. Why is she, what, what is going on? So something about the way I was behaving was just, ah, what is she doing? I don't know what the hell oh, I that's was behaving at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But I remember years and years later, I was about 17 and I saw a girl, a lovely woman called Joan, who I, I've kind of lost touch with, but she's beautiful. And I remember seeing her behave and I thought, I want to be a woman like her. I remember looking at her going, that, that, I want to be like that. She's powerful, but she's feminine. That's what I want. Mm. I, I remember distinctly, and I was right, she was beautiful. <laughs> it was a lovely role model to look at. So I do yeah. remember, so that was 17, that I distinctly thought, yeah. That is somebody I could fit into being. She's tough and she's feminine and she's she's she is all the things I want to be. And I suppose that's what you kind of need, I suppose, is, you know, that if you see it, you can be it. And yeah, that works both ways, because if you see it and you can be it and it's not something that's healthy, mm-hmm. that ain't great. But I saw something that was actually really lovely at 17. And I thought I, I would like that. That's the thing I want to go after. I don't know if I've totally lost you. <laughs> no, no, you're 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 saying something interesting because when it comes to the desistance kids, like a lot of times it feels like they were just looking for a sense of h- how to form themselves, a sense yeah. of aesthetic, a sense of style, a sense of what group you're part of. And yeah, a lot Who- of times de- I think desistance happens when you find a healthier way to be like, I remember one kid that I worked with, um, who was kind of experimenting with like this different identity and thinking about all of these, you know, masculine ways of being and then saw a show where there was a really quirky female kind of protagonist. Yes. And the, the main character was funny and like sassy and she was feminine but she wasn't like the ditzy female lead you know she was cool and she had her own quirks and she had a lot of like male friends just like my you know client Uh, and even though she didn't lom on to that and, and become obsessed with recreating that image it gave her the perception that there's another way to be a girl that I guess I just didn't know was a thing I didn't realize that so even though your experience of dysphoria was really different, like that's really actually something very important, yeah. I think, is you just kind of have another yeah. possibility and that gives you a way out. It was a beautiful moment. And I remember just looking, thinking, I, I could be like that person, Joan. And that's lovely. I could do that. Yeah. I could actually be, I could happily be that person. And it was yeah. like a relief of, oh my God, finally, I can see who yeah. I can be. 
if you know what I mean. I can see. But I'm thinking of the people who are older who desist as well. Because, you know, there's one thing, you know, when you're younger and there's one thing when you're a teenager and you're you're desisting. And to me, it's I, I, I bow my head in 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 kind of respect to any teenager who's desisting because it must be so so difficult in this yeah. political climate to try and desist in a classroom and you know to me this is where a fresh break would be really really helpful like to get out of the cultural context if you wanted to start anew and I I know in in Ireland very often people go to an Irish speaking summer camp for about three three and a half weeks during the summer and that's a real experience where you can go and be somebody different you know what I mean and we've all had that as as younger people I think that's really helpful for anybody who's trying to see who they could be in the different hats but I, I think to be an adult desister and I've met a few of them that's very surreal yeah, I think it, it's probably very difficult. Um, and one thing I often kind of have my eye out for is like, is this person's peer group gender obsessed? Are they pretty flexible? Will they support and love this friend regardless of the path the friend decides to take? Or is this a kind of high pressure group where there's no room or... Um, I even remember Helena has talked about how when she had a friend who desisted or detransitioned or something, she berated that friend and she got all over them and, you know, treated them like a traitor. And, of course, we know now uh, Helena has deeply, deeply examined and analyzed that behavior of hers at the time. But, you know, it's it's interesting because on one hand, I think there are elements in the culture which make it harder for kids to desist. But I also know... If you ask any teenager today in in a lot of schools that have tons of trans-identified kids, they're well aware that people flip-flop their identity all the time. So it's also not as surprising. Like, I think when you were young, you had staked your claim into something that was quite unusual. And so there was more face-saving that you had to do. But I, and even though there's a personal battle for each kid who's kind of teetering towards desistance, I also think it's not that big of a deal. And ironically, I think this whole like true trans versus trans trenders narrative is unhelpful in this arena because if you're one of these poor quote trenders and maybe you're a girl who's trying to figure things out and you've cycled through several identities and you're afraid of being called a fake or someone who was making it up, or someone who did it for attention, you might be more likely to stick in an identity that doesn't really feel right for you anymore. Whereas I think it would be much more healthy to say, hey, this is a time when a lot of young people are exposed to new ideas about identity and their bodies and what it means. And it can be a confusing road. And we shouldn't shame anybody because they took a bizarre twist and turn, you know, in their pathway towards adulthood. I I just, I think that having that flexibility, even though I'm not a fan of, you know, the non-binary and the agender and all of that, I do think at this moment in time, if we're too rigid about these things, we can inadvertently, you know, prevent young people from desisting who might actually want to. I agree. I often think that people are quite dismissive of the of of the non-binary and it's often a, a, the first step of desistance. 
Yeah. And and I don't think people quite appreciate that it very often is or trans mask or whatever. She's moved from this to the other and I'm the parent and I'm getting more stuck in into my kind of binary of this is all all, you know, this isn't appropriate. And so I I think these days in this context fluidity between the identities is exactly what they should be doing. Now, back in another era, it was all about other parts of your personality that you were focusing on and you were really kind of, am I this type of person? Am I that type of person? Who am I? But I think it has landed in gender these days and that's what they focus on. And it's in many ways, you you hear them talk about it and it sounds like actually very personality driven for, for for quite a lot of the descriptions of the different genders but I, I encourage I encourage it you know what I mean I encourage kind of mixing and moving and ch- changing different identities trying on this trying on that I do think that when somebody starts to fancy if they haven't had puberty blockers when somebody starts to fancy somebody else it takes the focus out of the self and onto the other and I actually think that's very good for them. That I'm I'm very into them starting to fancy people. I sound like a creep, but mm-hmm. I think <laughs> I think it's good for them. I think it's good for them because the utter focus on who am I, it feels like it's like something like really, really mind melting after a while. It almost feels like an acid trip. You're looking in the mirror. Who am I? Who am yeah. I? Who am I? And it, it, yeah. it, you can get so into lost into who you are, like the massiveness of your brain of who you are. And that's what this feels like sometimes, a massive kind of journey into introspection. And we have no idea. We just, yeah. we have no idea who we are, I think. Do you think that embarrassment plays a role? Because from some of the desisted kids I know, I think some of them, especially if they start to you know, disidentify with gender identity as a concept, they can feel quite embarrassed that they believed those things or that they said certain things to their peers or that they asked their parents for certain things. And it could be really kind of, I guess it's cringy. Like that's a teenage Mm. word that they use a lot. Like, oh, it was so cringe when I did that. And Mm. that's not always true. But I think that's that's a big piece of it for some kids. Did did you have that? Like, did you have a moment where you looked back and you felt embarrassed, or if you oh kind yeah, of had... oh from yeah. the moment of my reckoning and realization, I'm I'm in something and I have to get out. I was mortally embarrassed. I was utterly ashamed, deeply ashamed yeah. of who I was and what the hell I had got myself into, and I I didn't know how to. Uh, get out of that but it was shame was how I felt I just felt ashamed that I had I'd been that I was in something it was just so deep inside me this feeling I'd say I'd say people feel really really I don't think we talk about it enough that the shame would stop desistance and the embarrassment would stop desistance and how do you combat that it's very hard to tell somebody don't be ashamed don't be embarrassed because you either are or you aren't. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how we can yeah. lay a path yeah. out of that. It's it's kind of yeah. in you, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it has something to do with the framing, you know, like I, I always come back to self-compassion and kind of ask, like, how could that be useful here? Because if you look back at yourself and you think, oh, I was an idiot who got bought into something that was not real, 
that's very shame inducing. But if you say, you know, I was doing the best with what I had at the time, and I really believed that this mm. would make me feel better. And I tried and it turned out that, you know, that was actually not a helpful exercise. So I, I try to encourage clients to be more compassionate, especially to their younger selves. Like, desistance really does feel like a kind of coming of age process. And we do make so many you know, naive or foolish mistakes in our youth. And it doesn't mean that there was something damaged or broken about us. It's just, you know, we do our best with what we have at the time. And sometimes we're working with limited tools at yeah, various stages. Yeah. I remember um, uh, Charlie Evans, she started the D-Trans Advocacy Network and she was a desister. And I remember her describing, because I was mad to know, well, how, how did you desist? What what was the, the arc? She was about 25, 26, and she was completely presenting as a male and doing it very well. She looked really cool as a male. Yeah, yeah. And a uh, born woman, very much identified as trans, uh, trans man and hadn't medicalized. And she told me that how she desisted was... She that dual thought. She was thinking two things. She was a trans man. She was all about trans politics. Very into, by the way, trans politics. And then her mm. and her friend used to say, "We used to hate follow you, Stella. We used to hate follow different people." Wow. <laughs> and then they used to swap little things, like look at the state, what Stella's saying at the moment, and they'd send something. And then they'd say probably something that what you said. Look what she said. Isn't it ridiculous? But they were sending each other stuff. <laughs> And uh, they used to kind of say, you know, it's so ridiculous. It's so mad. And then once she was on the couch and she was uh, sitting with the friend who they used to hate follow and she's they watched something and they said, God, you know, sometimes it almost sounds like it's it's right. And the other <laughs> person said, yeah. And then there was a silence. And she said, from that, it grew. Just, just she just said once you know, Whoa. I know it was such it was like listening to a film when she was describing it. Yeah. <laughs> and then what yeah. happened? Then what happened? And it took some months before she came out from that. Sentence. Well, when when there are stories of desistance, more often than not, it's not like one day you wake up and you just decide to drop the whole thing. More often than not, it's a slow little incremental chipping away, coming to terms, all of these things. So it's fascinating that they started out hate following yeah. you and ended up agreeing with you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was a really interesting story. I think we need more accounts of desistance and I think they're mostly embarrassed I think yeah. they're mostly they don't really want to talk about it. And I could see why yeah. they've moved on. They're like, oh, honestly, it was a bit cringy. I was so into it. No, I'm not. And it's so yeah. not cool. And honestly, there might be trans people out there and I'm not one of them. And I, I, I feel I can't speak about it. And yeah. yet they were really into it. I do think we, should, we there's such golden wisdom to, to be found from those people, you know, but yeah, I can see why they don't speak, speak up. I think there are some people, too, that, you know, I think a lot about what the underlying needs are behind somebody's gender dysphoria or their trans identity. And if the person is getting those needs met somewhere else, then they may move on and kind of, 
maybe have some embarrassment, but they really shift their direction of how they're meeting needs. And then I think sometimes there are kids who desist, but they still want to be part of the club because maybe their social needs aren't being met elsewhere. And so I think that's really complicated because it's hard to make sense of your experience if you're still trying to be a quote ally. So that's a bit tricky. And I'm I'm curious to to see how those kinds of stories will unfold. Um, Stella, do you, you know, as we were preparing for this episode, we realized that there's kind of two big ways to talk about desistance. I think today we talked about your experience of desistance a couple of decades ago, what that was like, and then how that compares to desistance today. And then I'd love to do a follow-up episode where we address parents who think their kid might be desisting, and we talk a little bit about how that could look and give some parental advice or strategies around, you know, how to walk that very fine line. Mm. What do you think? I I think it's a really good idea. There's so much extraordinary wisdom from parents of desisted children who talk about the... I know Lily Maynard was one of the first ones who came out talking about how her child desisted. Then we've done a group in the GDSN of parents of desisted children. And, you know, th- there's there's been some quite, really quite interesting kind of yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, Marie from, from Fourth Wave Now, I mean, one of the pioneers of parent blogging around this issue. Oh, of you course. You know, she, she is an important desistance story and Bree Jauntry. I mean, there are a lot of... These are almost like the first generation of desisting yeah. kids and parents. And, you know, it's 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 a real injustice that they weren't treasured of. Well, your child avoided a road of heavy medicalization. Um, let, let's hear what you've got to say. And instead they were dismissed, derided, silenced. That really feels like something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Like that really feels like what? Why wouldn't you want your child to avoid a medicalized life? Medicalization is a really difficult process. It's yeah. it nothing to do with anything except the heavy burden that medicalization brings. Nothing to do with politics, everything to do with medicalization. So we could leave it here for now, but I think we'll revisit this because there's a lot more to yeah. talk about. We do have some great interviews lined up, so I'm really looking forward to yes. getting my teeth into them. I'm really excited by them. But we will we have way more to say about desistance and I think we'll we'll be back. <laughs> yeah, we'll have some information for parents who suspect their kids may be desisting. So stick around. It was a great first discussion. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender: A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect. And listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media. And if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 